Welcome to the podcast for Palmdale United Methodist Church for Sunday, May 20th, 2018. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I love stories. Ever since I was a child, I've loved listening to stories being told, and as I've grown up, I've loved telling stories. Maybe that's uh, part of the reason why I became a theater major at the University of Hawaii uh, when I was an undergraduate. But storytelling has shaped my life, and I think it shapes the way I preach as well. As a pastor, one of the types of storytelling that I've come to love and embrace are parables. Now, if you look up in the dictionary, it'll say that a parable is a simple story used to tell a spiritual lesson, which is an okay definition to start with, but I think it goes even deeper. A few weeks ago, I was listening to Rob Bell's podcast uh, called The Robcast, one of the greatest podcast names ever, I think, Uh, and he was interviewing uh, Peter Rollins. Peter is a writer, a philosopher, storyteller, and public speaker from Northern Ireland, and he was talking with Rob Bell about the use of parables. And he told Rob that parables disrupt our thinking. They tend to turn on its head the things that we think are moral and right. And instead of a parable being trying to get us to figure out the right answer, parables challenge the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about the world, and the way we think about God. In fact, uh, instead of telling us about our world, if we allow them to, parables can actually change our world. And, and break open our world into new possibilities. Here's a couple of short video clips from a talk that Pete Rollins gave called Pints and Parables. And uh, let's listen to him speak a little bit more about these wonderful stories. Within parables, and the parables that I've just told, there is this breaking apart of what we think. Parables are very hard to pin down. They're very hard to work out what exactly they're saying. New interpretations arise. They seem more interested in confusing you (laughs) and getting you to think differently. Even the most well-worn of parables, you can find interpretations still today that are new and innovative. They can never be nailed down. The parables are even, they speak beyond even the people who write them. They, they, a good parable can't be contained. So there's something about parables that, that always defy simple and easy interpretation. They will speak to us in new ways. And they will bring to the surface unpleasant truths. They will challenge us. I love those last two statements, uh, that parables defy simple interpretation. So if you hear the story and you're like, I know exactly what this means, maybe not. Think again. And they bring to the surface unpleasant truths that challenge us. Welcome to a brand new sermon series entitled Busted Parables of Judgment. Now, I know judgment, the word carries with a lot of baggage. In fact, the church especially is often characterized as being uh, quite quick to judge, especially those outside the church. And we're living in a time that so many people are looking for exactly the opposite, right? They're, they're looking for a community that won't judge them, that will let them uh, be who it is that God called and created them to be. That's not what this series is about. 
Robert Capon, in his book, The Parables of Judgment, have a very helpful description in the beginning about what judgment means when you think about the context of Jesus and his parables. He says the theme of judgment really is a theme of crisis. It's that decisive, history-altering and history-fulfilling action of God. And it's present in Jesus' teaching from the very beginning of his ministry. Capon says there were three types of parables that Jesus would tell. Uh, Parables of grace, parables of the kingdom of God, and parables of judgment. But here's what I found super interesting. He said that Jesus told all of his parables of judgment in just the last few days leading up to his death, leading up to his crucifixion. So rather than thinking about uh, parables of judgment as being somehow stories that are going to shame us or condemn us, instead, they are inextricably linked to Jesus' death and resurrection. So this could have been the artwork that I chose for the series when you think about judgment, but I don't know. I just kind of felt fond about this one. But as we see this, let us uh, not forget the biblical meaning of judgment, that it's God's decisive, history-altering, history-fulfilling actions in the world. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard uh, that was read for us is found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. Now, it may not be the most, uh, one of the most well-known parables of Jesus. In fact, that would probably be either the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son. But it might be one of the more troubling parables of Jesus. I had breakfast this past Wednesday morning with a group of men from the church. And as we were reading through the story, one of them said, you know, I've always had a problem with this parable. Exactly. I think many of us are in that same boat, right? Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, instead of rereading the parable that we just had read for us, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to share uh, the words from Robert Capon. He's one of my favorite authors. I love his flair and his storytelling style. And you'll you'll see uh, as I go why it is that I'm so uh, excited about this. Though remember that he wrote this in 1989. So some of the uh, uh, expressions and some of the references he used, think late 80s uh, when you're hearing it. Here's how Robert Capon retells this story. There was a man who owned a vineyard. His operation wasn't on the scale of Ernest and Julio Gallo, but it was quite respectable. Let's let's put him in the Robert Mondavi class. We first see this gentleman on the evening of the second Sunday in October. September had been the perfect month, hot and dry, bringing the grapes to 20 degrees brie. But his meteorological service tells him that the weather is about to turn ugly quick. So what does our friend Robert do? He gets up first thing on Monday morning, goes down to what passes for the local hiring hall, and contracts for as much day labor as he can pick up. Unfortunately, every other grower in the neighborhood uses the same weather report, so he has to promise higher pay to attract the workers he needs, let's say $120 for the day. So Robert loads his crew into a couple of old school buses and puts them to work, chop, chop. Then, just before 9 a.m., he gets another weather update. They have moved the start of the three weeks of rain from Wednesday back to Tuesday, and now he only has one day, not two, to get his entire harvest in. So, out he goes at 9, therefore, and then with increasing panic, also at noon, and at 3, still to hire more people to work in his vineyard. Each time he succeeds in rounding up all the available help, giving them the by-now-practiced line that he is Robert Mondavi, 
the famous payer of top dollar, who's also Mr. Fairness himself. Whatever is right, he promises they will get it. It's a huge harvest, though. And with only one hour to go before dark, Robert realizes he won't get it all in on time without even more help. So out he goes again. But the hiring hall is closed by now, and the village square has only its usual crowd of up-to-the-minute losers hanging out in a haze of smoke. You know the types, right? Lots of leather, some girls and their boyfriends with more moose than brains, six-packs everywhere, and music that ruptures your eardrums. But what the heck? Robert thinks in desperation it's worth at least a try, so he walks up to the group, ostentatiously switches off the offending ghetto blaster, and goes into his spiel. He's Robert Mondavi, the famous and fair. They could probably use a buck, so what do they think? Well, what they think, of course, is, eh, what the heck? Whatever he wants them to do, it won't take long. And whatever he pays, at least it's a couple more six-packs that they can have tonight. So off they go. Now then, run your mind over the story so far, writes Capon. I'm sure you know exactly what happens each time one of those new bunches of workers gets dropped off at the vineyard. Right Before they even pick a single grape, they make sure that they find out from the workers already on the job the exact per diem amount on which Robert Mondavi is basing his chances at now harvesting the Guinness Book of World Records for grapes. And since they are, like the rest of the human race, obsessive bookkeepers, they take the $120 figure divided by 12, which is number of hours in a workday, multiplied by the number of hours they'll be working, and then and only then do they lay hand a grape, securing the knowledge that they will be getting... Respectively, $100, $70, $40, or $10, depending on which wave they were hired in. Robert, however, has a surprise for them. At the end of the day, he is a happy, happy man. And with his best and biggest harvest on its way to the stemmer crusher, he feels expansive and a little frisky. So he says to his foreman, I've got a wild idea. I'm going to fill the panvelopes myself. But when you give them out, I want you to do it backwards, beginning with the last ones who were hired, bring them up first. And when the first girl with the purple hair gets her envelope and walks away with it, she finds six crisp $20 bills. What does she do? She does not go back and report the overage. She just keeps on walking fast. And when her shirt open to the waist boyfriend catches up to her and tells her that he also got $120, well, dear old human nature triumphs again. They cannot resist in going back and telling everyone else what jerks they were for sweating a whole day in the hot sun when they could have made the same money for just an hour's work. Well, on hearing that Robert Mondavi is now famous for paying $120 an hour, oh, the other workers put in their mental bookkeeping machinery to reverse and floor the pedal. And what do they come up with? Oh, oh, fabulous joy. They conclude that they are now about to become the proud possessors of, in order, $480, $840, or, bless you, Robert Mondavi, $1,440 for a full day's pay. But Robert, like God, is only crazy, not stupid. Like God, he has arranged for their recompense to be based only on the weird goodness that he is most famous for. Not for the just desserts they have infamously imagined for themselves. Every last envelope they find inside has six $20 bills. No more for those who worked all day and no less for those who didn't, which, of course, goes down like Gatorade for the last bunch hired, like dishwater for the next to last, like vinegar for the almost first, and like hot sulfuric acid for the first of all. 
Predictably, therefore, on the lame brain principle that those who are the most outraged should argue the case uh, for those who are uh, less so, the sweatiest and the most exhausted decide to give Robert a hard time. Hey, man, they say, you call this a claim to fame? Those punks over there only worked one hour and we knocked ourselves out all day long. How come you made them equal to us? And Robert quickly responds, look, pal, don't give me any lip. You agreed to $120 a day. Take it and get out of here before I call the cops. I mean, if I want to give some pothead and Gucci loafers the same pay as you, so what? You're telling me I can't do what I want with my own money? I'm supposed to be a stinker because you got your nose all out of joint? No. If you want to mope, that's your business. But since the only thing it'll get you is a lousy disposition, why don't you just shut up and go into the tasting room and have yourself a free glass of Chardonnay? The choice is up to you, friend. Drink up or get out. Compliments of the house. That's more or less the gist of the parable, according to Robert Capon. And in all honesty, I have to ask you, so what do you think of the story? Now, if you're like most of us, it kind of sticks in your craw a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, why is that? We can all say it together, because it's just not fair. Exactly. Now, before we get into the what does this parable mean part of the sermon, but remember from Pete uh, Rollins' introduction, uh, parables defy simple interpretations. Let's go back and look at a little details from this parable. Michael Williams, in his Storyteller's Companion to the Bible uh, commentary, notes that in the first century, many people who were poor, they lived in Palestine without regular employment. So from one day to the next, they would work different jobs, whatever they could find in order to make a living to take care of their family. So to secure employment for each day, they would gather before sunrise, usually around 6 a.m., at the village marketplace. And they would just stand around, and overseers would come, and then they would hire the workers that they needed for their job, whatever it was, for the day. A day's wage was usually a denarius. And it uh, wasn't considered minimum wage, it was considered a subsistence wage, a wage that would provide basic food and clothing for a family. So, uh, the first workers in the story uh, accept the owner's proposal for that daily wage, and then off they go to do their best. In fact, uh, if all goes well, they hope that the owner might invite them back again tomorrow to work in the vineyard, and then maybe a few more tomorrows after that. Capon's insight about the oncoming rains wasn't too far-fetched either. Sometimes the weather necessitated that a harvest be completed earlier than they originally anticipated, in which case then the owners would have to go down and get more workers to try to finish the work on a quicker timetable. Well, did you notice what uh, the owner said to those who were hired in the second, third, and the fourth batches? He said this. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you... What is right? I will pay you what is right. So, Mr. Mandavi, I mean, sorry, the vineyard owner in the parable uh, must have had a reputation that warranted that the workers would trust him uh, to give them what was right and not stiff them in the end. In fact, with that last group that was hired at 5 o'clock, he doesn't even promise to pay them. He just says, uh, come and work in the vineyard. And, and they, having stood by all day without being hired, Uh, these last workers must have been eternally grateful just to have something, right? Just something that they could do and and maybe get something to take home to their families because there are few things more demeaning than being willing and eager to work but nobody giving you a chance. 
And so these last workers escape further public humiliation of standing there in the open square, and they trust that they'll have something to take home to their families at the end of the day, which isn't too far from when they got hired. So far, so good, right? There's nothing in this parable now that seems to be troubling or objectionable until we hit verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. Kenneth Bailey, in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, notes that for a thousand years, the Arabic versions of this parable have preserved the precise language that appears in the original Greek. It's, the steward is instructed to pay the wage. That was considered the, the full day's pay for a laborer. Now, if he wanted to avoid the brouhaha that erupted at the end, all he had to do was follow the traditional end-of-the-day payment practices. Those who have worked the longest get paid first, at which point they would open their envelopes, they would see the $120 or whatever it was that they agreed to, they would be happy that they had put in a hard day's work and would go home rejoicing. In fact, every successive group would have done the same thing, right? They would have got their envelope, they would have been extremely grateful for the amount that they were given, and they would have gone home happy, and there wouldn't have been any complaints at the steward's pay table. So why does the owner make the last first and the first last? Just to stir up trouble? Bailey suggests that the owner must have wanted all of the workers to witness the grace that he was extending to others. Now, we've all heard of the slogan, right? Equal pay for equal work. I would argue that this is not what is being protested in this parable. This is not an equal work for equal pay parable, not at all. Because it's not about those who are underpaid. No one is underpaid in this parable. The folks that are complaining got exactly what it was that they signed up to get in the beginning. Really, this is a parable about being overpaid and about the people who can't stand the grace being extended to others. As we come down to the final stretch of this parable, I want to remind us again of two things. I told you it's going to get under your skin a little bit, right? Make us uncomfortable. First, remember that parables of judgment are tied directly to Jesus' death and resurrection. So we need to start thinking in terms of that uh, period of his life. And then second, remember what Pete Rollins said about parables bring to the surface those unpleasant truths that make us uncomfortable. One of my seminary professors said, if you want to get the full power of reading the Bible, you always have to put yourself in the position of the least likable characters. So if that's the case, then today we have to say, how are we like those workers that have been working all day in the vineyard, and we have chosen to grumble and complain about the owner's payment practices? Kenneth Bailey says, instead of calling this the parables of the parable of the workers in the vineyard, he likes to call it the parable of the compassionate employer. Because really, it's a parable that focuses on, it's not on who's worked longer and harder, but instead on the incredible generosity and grace of the person that owns the vineyard, who went out of his way to make sure that as many people as possible had a chance to work, had a chance to be there in the vineyard, even if it was only for a short period of time. And what incredible compassion he had for those who were unemployed, for those whom in this life had been passed over, left out, marginalized, kicked to the curb, and still people got upset because of his compassion and generosity. Robert Capon points out that the only punishable offense in the kingdom of heaven is bookkeeping. 
Let that sink in again. The only thing that gets under God's skin is our bookkeeping. We humans are notorious bookkeepers, aren't we? We're so quick to judge what's fair and what's not fair, who owes us and whom we still own, whether it's a a wrong committed against us or a gift given to us. We always keep track who we have to pay back or get something back from, right? We love keeping accounts. But because of the life and death of Jesus, judgment, as we're coming to learn in this parable or this series, this is what judgment means, the life and death of Jesus, all those things we've been so steadfast at keeping track of, they don't really matter at all. Because of the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, all those books are ignored forever. In fact, the only book that really counts is the book of life. And, and that book, and because of Jesus, nothing stands against us. Capon writes, There are no debit entries that can keep us out of the clutches of the love that will not let us go. There is no minimum balance below which the grace that finagles all accounts will cancel your credit. The only auditor before whom you must finally stand is the Lamb. And he has gone, get this, deaf, dumb, and blind on the cross. Everybody is on the payout queue and everybody gets full pay. You know, if the world could have been saved by bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses, not Jesus. The law was just fine, right? God gave it a good thousand years or so to see if anybody could live up to the test of the law. But when nobody did, and when it became clear that as uh, Paul tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God decided to give up on bookkeeping altogether. He canceled everybody's debts on the, with uh, the death of Jesus and rewarded us all equally and fully with a new creation in the ultimate judgment, which was the resurrection. Capon finishes this powerful chapter by writing these words. In the kingdom of God, only the winners lose because only the losers can win. The kingdom of heaven is for everybody. Hell is reserved only for the idiots who insist on keeping non-existent records in their heads. Can I get an amen? And it's an uncomfortable amen, I understand. (laughs) Remember, friends, instead of trying to tell us the right answer, parables challenge the ways that we think about ourselves, about God, and about this world. So as we get ready to leave this morning, as we walk out of here with our payment envelopes, will we be shocked to discover we've each been given six crisp $20 bills? I'm speaking figuratively, of course, right? (laughs) But not just those of us who have come to worship here at Palmdale United Methodist Church this morning But also, every other person we will pass this week is given an envelope with the same amount. The question is, how are we going to respond to that grace and generosity in the world? Amen.